Man, good morning, uh, everybody. So good to see you. Uh, hopefully you uh, got a little bit of sleep uh, through the thunder and lightning uh, last night. It's good back to be uh, in two services. Had a great service at nine, back together at 1045. So glad you're here. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, so glad that you came out uh, today, and we would love to get to know you a little bit better. If you're in the room, uh, stop by the Welcome Center today. We would love to uh, give you a free gift just for being here, and there's a way that you can connect with us either online through our uh, online connection card, or there's one out at the Welcome Center. The online one is at journeyjonesworld.com slash connect, uh, and you can let us know how we can pray for you if you've got any questions, anything like that, or you can stop by at the Welcome Center, pick up that free gift. And also, if uh, you are new, maybe you don't have a Bible and you've been here a while or something like that, uh, just ask uh, the folks out there. They would love to give you uh, a copy of scripture to have uh, for yourself. It's free of charge. We always like to uh, leave people with that because we think that the message of Jesus uh, and his scriptures are life-changing and the foundation for all that we do uh, in life. And if you're online with us, also glad you're here uh, with us and love the fact that we get to connect with you online. Uh, You can fill out that online connection card that I mentioned earlier, and uh, there's somebody on the chat that would love to connect with you uh, there as well. We're finishing up a sermon series uh, today uh, called Saturate. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 8 through 20, uh, finishing up with Saturate Us With Your Paradigm. And I'll get to that uh, in just a second. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, if you don't have a scripture, uh, a copy of scripture on your own, uh, I'll have it up here on the screen. You can follow along that way. But I want to tell you a couple things that I'm really excited about uh, before we get in scripture uh, today. One is uh, one thing we do around here is we believe that worship is not just singing songs or uh, sitting and learning things. We believe it's active. And so we have this initiative we always do every month called Force for Good. Uh, We do different kinds of things and different focuses. What we're focusing on for this month in January and February, uh, we're focused on blessing our area teachers. Uh, If you're a teacher in here, uh, hear me say on behalf of us, we appreciate what you do, especially this crazy past year uh, that uh, everything you've had to uh, endure and kind of navigate this past year. Uh, You're rock stars to be able to do that. Uh, But we want to support you. And if you're part of our church or you're just coming through, uh, there's a couple ways you can do that. There's a list on our website, on our homepage. If you scroll down to the bottom at journeyjonesworld.com, there's a list of things uh, that you can purchase and bring and drop off uh, at the coffee bar over the rest of this month, uh, coming up for a few more weeks, I think. Uh, and then you can also write a message, uh, a blessing, uh, an encouragement to our teachers out there. We would love it if you'd stop by before you leave out as part of your act of worship today. The other thing I'm excited about is, uh, and coming up about a week and a half we've got, or, or so, we've got a, our, our college conference, our Journey College conference, a spring conference that's uh, focused and dedicated to raising up college leaders. And so if you're a college student, you haven't signed up uh, for that, stop by the Welcome Center. They'd love to get you connected uh, for that concentrated time of that. But college students are a big part of who we are. Uh, that's where uh, we got our start, and we believe that's a big part of our future. And so I'm excited. I'm asking you to continue to pray uh, for our college students as they head into that next weekend. Uh, and then uh, finally, the other thing I'm excited about uh, is the fact that uh, this past year, we were able to extend our facility here and add on to it with our Journey Kids uh, expansion. Uh, And that has allowed us to really start to be able to dream and think about what we could do to become a blessing to our community, not just to have more square footage and space here uh, for Sundays and things like that, but to actually how can we serve our community. And so uh, what we're kicking off this fall is something called Journey Kids Village. Okay, Journey Kids Village is a a two-day-a-week preschool program that uh, will help help us to partner with families so that they can succeed and their kids get off to a great start uh, in life. And uh, uh, we're getting
getting on the, uh, we're on the front end of that. We've got a team put together. We're putting all the plans in place. We're going to open registration in a couple weeks. But I'm mentioning that to you or right now because you may be in need of those services or know someone that is, or you may be wanting to uh, uh, learn more about how you can be involved in that. And uh, there's two ways you can do that. The, if uh, you're on our mailing list, look in your inbox. This past week, you got an email specifically about that. Open that up. There's a link on there. You can take a survey that'll let, let us know a little bit about where you are and a few things. And then also, if you didn't get that, uh, it'll be posted this afternoon on Facebook and social media on both those accounts, okay? Uh, and so those are a few things. And then finally, the last thing I want to share about that is what enables us to do those things is your generosity. You've been so faithful uh, for so many years, especially this past year with everything that's going on, uh, to be able to uh, invest in what we're doing. So when you give weekly around here, uh, it allows us to be able to, to dream and to be able to meet real needs, whether it's college students like the high school, junior high students over the course of this uh, past week with One Life, or, or whether or not it's uh, this preschool program that we're getting, kicking off this fall. So thank you for that. Please continue to do that uh, as we partner together to be a force for good. All right. That was a mouthful, but now let's get into finishing up our series. We've been in a month-long focus on Saturate. It's not just been a sermon series. It's been a focus uh, with our church and about 20 other churches uh, in our city uh, to focus and center around uh, this idea of praying for our city and positioning ourselves together uh, to usher in the kingdom of God, to be instruments of the kingdom of God in our city by uh, asking God to shape our heart for love for those around us, giving us hum humility and humble hearts, and then ultimately to bring about his justice in our neighborhoods, our schools, uh, just all throughout our community where there, where there are wrong things that are there. We believe that the gospel and Jesus wants to make it right, and we want to be a part of making it right and helping on that. And so we've been looking at that, praying over all those type of things. Thank you so much, those of you that take part in there. I think about 300 of you have done that. Uh, but what we've also been doing is we've been using this time to strategically look at what would it look like if God was to saturate us with his heart and his compassion? We've looked at his power. We've looked at his purpose. We've looked at his perspective. Today, we're going to be looking at a paradigm. Now, if you don't know what a paradigm is, a paradigm is basically just a framework. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, the way that you would approach something that you do. We do this in sports. Okay, If you've got a, a playbook, if you play football and you've got a playbook, that's kind of a paradigm. It's like, this is how we go about uh, doing this. Uh, you, we do it in business. Uh, this is the way our business is structured. This is the way we approach it. And you don't have to be in something official like an institution or a sports or a job. All of us have a paradigm for life. Uh, all of us have a structure, a way that we look uh, at life. Uh, and there's been this longstanding argument, is it nature or nurture? Is it just something that we just kind of concoct because that's just our nature and we have our own way of looking at things? Or is it something that we're nurtured into where uh, our environment plays a part in shaping our understanding of the world, how, uh, how relationships work, how faith works, how, how money works, how the world's supposed to work? And what I would say is it's both. I think both, all of us have kind of both of those things going on. We've got a nature that's unique to us. God's designed us that way. But we also have environments. And if you look across the world, there's different environments. There's different nations, different backgrounds. And people have different paradigms for how things are supposed to work. And if you look at the area of faith uh, specifically, and you would even look at like the Christian faith specifically, you would say that if you kind of surveyed the landscape of history and then even contemporary culture, uh, and if you were to survey people, say, hey, what is Christianity? Hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? You're probably going to get a slew of answers based on certain people's paradigms, right? Uh, they're based on their experience, their background, their understanding of Scripture and faith in the world. They're going to give you a paradigm. Well, what we're endeavoring to do today is we're going to say, okay, what was Jesus' paradigm? 
Let's kind of clear out all the clutter, and let's just look at a passage of Scripture today that would help us to actually uh, deliberately actually define what our paradigm is. Because what we're trying to get our arms wrapped around here is where is God leading us into the future? What's he calling us to be? What's he calling us to do? And in order to get there, it's going to take a paradigm. It's going to have a template. It's not going to exist in chaos. It's going to have to have a way that that takes place. And if you're new to the faith or you're wrestling with faith or you're a longtime person of faith of following Jesus, this is an important way for us to actually zero in and say, what are we really talking about here when it pertains to moving forward with faith? And so with that in mind, let's, as the backdrop, let's dig into this scripture. Uh, we've been in Luke chapter 9 and 10 for four weeks, and so we're kind of picking up where we left off, so there's a little bit of an overlap, but we'll hit the ground running because we've got a lot of ground to cover, okay? Luke chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 8. It says this, when you enter a town, <coughs> excuse me, and you're in, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and you're not welcomed, Go into the streets and say, even the dust of, your, uh, of the town, we wipe our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, the overlap from the last couple of weeks is this. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, has set his face toward Jerusalem. That means that at this point in the story, uh, the nature of the way Luke tells the story is, is taking a different tone and a different direction. Up until this point, Luke chapter 8, uh, he's been talking about everything he's doing. He's having all these encounters. He's healing people. He's teaching and stuff like that. But Luke wants us to know that this is a deliberate move on Jesus' part to go to his ultimate end. This is what Jesus had on his mind. That means that the cross and his crucifixion wasn't an accident. It wasn't uh, something that he didn't expect. He was actually resolutely pointing his direction there. He knew what he was doing. And along the way, what we begin to see is Jesus is handing his ministry off. He's actually bringing in his, uh, uh, the 12 disciples. We see that in Luke chapter 9. When we get to Luke chapter uh, 10, he's taking about 72 other disciples disciples, and there's a lot of people that are following Jesus, not just the 12, and he's handing off the baton. He's training. He's raising them up to say, hey, once I'm gone, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to behave. Here is your paradigm. And what he's already unpacked in that kind of laying out that schematic for them or the paradigm is simply this. He says, there's going to be times when you're going to go into house and you're going to preach a message. You're going to say, hey, peace on this house. I, I want to bring peace in this house. I want to bring God's shalom, his wholeness, his goodness to bear in your situation. And he wants us to flesh that out in a very personal and practical way. That means that spirituality and faith is not just mystical and ethereal. It actually is really personal and really practical. It actually meets specific needs on a very personal level. And he says, when you go into a house, I want you to do this. And when they welcome you, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stay there. You're supposed to hang out. You're supposed to build relationships. And you're not supposed to move around. You're supposed to focus on those relationships. But then he moves, doesn't he, in verse uh, 8. He moves to not just a house, but he moves to a town. He says, when you go into a town and you're welcome, this is what I want you to do. I want you to say, hey, the kingdom of God has come near. But then Jesus does an interesting thing. He does something that oftentimes we don't do when we're trying to sell things. Uh, we don't do it oftentimes in church. We're trying to give everybody kind of the, the glamour news. We're trying to give them all the upside, all the, the good things that, uh, that God has in store for you because he's got a slew of good things in store for you. Uh, relationship with God is great and all this kind of stuff. And, and it seems like the thing, the nature to do is to really lean into all the good stuff. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus begins to frame a paradigm for us that is completely intellectually honest and consistent. This is what I mean. 
He says, there's going to be times when everything is not up and to the right. When you get together and everything doesn't go great. You're going you're gonna to follow me and there's going to be times when you're not welcomed. When you're actually, you're actually pushed aside. You're stiff-armed. When people actually deny you, when people renounce you, and those type of things. And so here's what I want you to know. Jesus is saying, I want to be intellectually honest about the reality and the nature of what it means to actually follow me and do this thing. I love this because what Jesus is not trying to do is he's not trying to soft sell it. He's not trying to bait and switch what this is about. He's trying to be completely honest. If you want to follow me, this is what you can expect. There's going to be times when it's great, and there's going to be some other times when it's not so great. And I feel I need to say that uh, in 2021 because uh, it seems like everything around us is one or the other. We, we either go to church and we hear about all the bad things, you know, somebody pounding a pulpit and pointing at us and calling us out, or we hear all the good things. There's people out there that are going to tell you everything you want to hear. They're going to make everything sound awesome, and you just follow it, and, and everything is great, and we all love each other and all that stuff like that. But we all know that's not intellectually honest. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way relationships work. And that's not even the way faith works. What Jesus says is that this is balanced, that you're going to go into times that are great and you're going to be welcome. And you're going to go into times when it's not going to go great. And you need to know that because in order for us to move forward as a church, as individuals together to follow Jesus, we're going to have to be honest and embrace the reality of both extremes. That if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to mean that you say, listen, I'm up for the task of following him, even when things don't go particularly well. But here's the other thing. He's not just being intellectually honest. He's also being consistent. If you look at the passage, what you'll notice is the message doesn't change, right? He says, when you're welcome, the message is simply this, the kingdom of God has come near. When you come into the other situation, you're not welcome. The message is exactly the same. The, the kingdom of God has come near. And what that means for us, in order for us to have a paradigm as a church and as individuals, that means that our message doesn't change. Our essential core message does not change. That doesn't mean that there's other matters of interpretation that we won't differ on. There's a lot of things that are not crucial to this message that are kind of peripheral or matters of interpretation. But what is essential for us is that we have one central message that we're all committed to and we don't change culturally with the winds of things and we don't just move in and out of things. The message was consistently the same. The kingdom of God has come near, personal and practical. But here's the deal. When you hear this passage, what you begin to pick up is, though Jesus is being completely honest, and though the message is exactly the same, it's received in two particular, particularly different ways. One is it sounds like an invitation, right? That's what he's been doing. Hey, come, be a part of the kingdom of God. You know, if you're broken, here's healing. If you're lost, here's salvation, all those things. And that's a really good message if you accept the invitation. But what he also does, he balanced that out, is the same message can also not sound like an invitation, but can actually sound like a warning. The same message can both be an invitation and it can be a warning. And it all has to do with how the message is received. And so we don't have one message for people that disagree with us and one message for people that disagree with us, agree with us. We have the same message, but can be heard in two totally different ways. And if we are both being personal and practical, if we're being loving and sensitive, then we can consistently move forward in faith. And so Jesus on the outset begins to frame, doesn't he, our paradigm for how we are supposed to understand and operate what it means to follow him. 
But now he's about to break into something that begins to really get a little convoluted and it begins to get a little confusing. And so we're going to spend a little time on this next verse because there's some things that we can unpack that will actually help us to finish and build out this paradigm. What's what Jesus says next in Luke chapter 10, verse 12? He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He's talking about this thing called that day. Now, my question is, if I'm reading this, uh, I'm saying, what what is that? What is that day? What day is he talking about? Is that a Tuesday? Is that next Sunday? Like, you know, what is that? Is that that Easter? I mean, what what are we talking about? What is that day? Well, that phrase, that day, is something that you see that spans the entirety of Scripture. Uh, it, it's kind of a, uh, if you, a prototype, if you will. It's something that pops up consistently. And in order to understand what that day is, then we kind of have to do a little bit of background. We got to go to school for a little bit. I'm sorry, I know it's Sunday, but we got to go to school a little bit because we need to understand what, what, how they heard that phrase. What in the world did that mean to them, this concept of that day? Well, uh, it really refers to a phrase that you've heard probably before if you've been in church. If you've not, uh, you may have heard it somewhere before, but it's called the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, I'll give you a quick definition. This is kind of my words for it. Um, So this is not out of a dictionary anyway. This is the way I say it. If you see this in scripture, this is what it refers to. It refers to moments in history When God confronts human evil, which includes an act of liberation of people who suffer under an evil empire. Okay, so it's two facets. A day of the Lord is when God enters into human history and he comes and he addresses the evil. He confronts evil that's in our world. And in doing so, every time there's evil present, there's someone that's oppressed by that evil uh, empire or regime. And he liberates those people out of the evil empire and out of oppression. So he confronts evil and he liberates out. And this is, anytime you see this concept pop up, this is what it's always talking about. Now, where in the world did this start? What in the world are we talking about? Well, it, it really begins where everything begins, back all the way back in the book of Genesis. Favorite first book of your Bible, okay? Now, the way that the story is told, uh, uh, man and one, woman were created in the image of God to have a relationship with God, relationship to each other, relationship to the world around them. It was all good. It was great. They were uh, made to rule and to reign alongside God, uh, and they were supposed to adopt his rule uh, and his way of looking at good and evil. Well, if you follow the story out, uh, that leads to rebellion by men and women. Uh, It turns out that they decide that they want to be God. They don't want to follow God and rule alongside God. They want to make themselves out to be gods. And so they turn away from God and they establish their own rules for what's right and what's wrong, for what's good and what's evil. Well, what that introduces for us is this act of rebellion. Sometimes it's called the fall, which I use that language, but sometimes I don't like it because it sounds like it was an accident, like you tripped and you fell. It was actually a deliberate act of rebellion against God. They turned away from God. And that story is told really through the rest of history, but it's really concentrated in Genesis 3 through 11. And what you see, if you read that, maybe go read it this afternoon, you're going to see this rapid decline. And what you're going to see is the ripple effects of what seemed like just the individual decision of a couple of people just to make their own way. But what you see is very quickly in the next chapter, at least to taking another human life before long, it leads to uh, the, the ripple effect goes farther out. 
It looks like abuse. It looks like exploitation. It looks like sexual immorality. It looks like all kinds of things. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, everything's gone really bad. You've got the flood story in there, of course. But then when you get to Genesis 11, you've got this story about a place called the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel, if we throw it up there, actually the root word for that, and I know this is a little academic, but uh, it's actually the same root word uh, for Babylon. And you may have heard that word before. Uh, it was a famous nation in ancient times, the, the, the nation of Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the famous kings of there. They had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, all those kind of stuff. Well, and you may have heard that name Babel too, if you're not even familiar with the Bible, because uh, if someone's like, saying something that you, that's unintelligible or is confusing, you say, well, they're just babbling, right? That's where this came from. It came from this passage in, in Genesis chapter 10 into 11, where uh, the people of God had descended so far away from God into rebellion that they actually began to build a tower up to the heavens to put themselves in a position of authority uh, to act as if they are gods. And so what began as personal sin became systemic and corporate and so the understanding of sin from a Jewish perspective was not just, hey, you and your little personal sins. It was, it was you, it was a people, and it was all of the human race together. And so this descent, this decline led them into what becomes an archetype or a prototype for what we understand what it means to actually turn away from God. And what you see in Scripture uh, time and time again is Babylon is kind of the... Uh, kind of the catchphrase, if you will, for any time someone would, would deviate from God. Uh, any time a nation would turn away from God, uh, they would be called Babylon. And it wouldn't be actually their name. It would just be what they were called, right? It's what they were called. And where you see that really begin to flesh out in the people of God, in the story of God, is when the people of God get taken into captivity in a land called Egypt. Now, this is a famous story. They made a lot of movies about it. Um, this is when uh, the, you see the first recorded account in Scripture of slavery. And what happens is Pharaoh and his armies, they take the Jewish people and they subjugate them and they begin to oppress them. Uh, they begin to make uh, bricks out of straw. They begin to uh, basically work underneath the hand of an oppressor. They're, they're enslaved. And so the story plays out that the Jewish people are crying out to God. You know, they're crying out to God. They're saying, God, deliver us, because what else would you say? I mean, obviously you would say, Lord, save us from this situation. And so God picks a guy named Moses. He goes into Egypt and he goes up to Pharaoh and he says, hey, let my people go. And he does it 10 different times. He goes to him 10 different times to say, hey, listen, let my people go. And if you see the story, Pharaoh responds finally. God says, listen, I don't know your God. Basically, in effect, he's saying, I'm the only God I know. I'm not listening to you. And then finally, after the 10 opportunities, God sends 10 plagues. The last of those plagues was to take the firstborn son of every household. But God made a provision. And the provision that God made to everybody that would take it is if you would come underneath into the house, if you would kill a lamb and you would wipe the blood on the doorpost, uh, uh, the doorframe of your house, and you came underneath that, then this uh, kind of uh, supernatural figure called the destroyer, when the destroyer comes over, you will be shielded by God's blood and his power. And in so doing, you will be saved. Now, the reason I mention that is this is the first time you see systemic evil address from a national level. 
And what happened on that day became something that uh, was identifiable for millennia for the Jewish people. From that day forward, they celebrate this, this very day and see if you can figure out what it is from Exodus 13.3. This is what Moses said about the time when they were delivered. It says, uh, commemorate this day, the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery because the Lord brought you out of it with his mighty hand. He delivered them. He came and he addressed the evil empire. And in so doing, he liberated the innocent people that were underneath oppression. So you see those two things, right? And you may remember, if you're kind of a student of scripture, you may remember this from history, uh, what uh, was the festival that the Jewish people actually began to institute to commemorate this day. Anybody remember? Passover. Yeah, Passover. This is where Passover started. So Passover was a celebration of the day of the Lord, the time when God entered into human history to actually confront evil and to liberate a group of people. Well, if you fast forward the story, that all sounds well and good, and these become the prototypes or archetypes for the story of Scripture, and they revisit it over and over and over and over in, in a lot of different ways. But what you learn, if you dig back into the story, you go from Genesis to Babel or Babylon, Babylon and it comes back around to Egypt, and then it actually some other nations come and do that. But what you find in the story of Israel is something that was kind of startling, is the, the ones that had been oppressed actually become the oppressors. There's plenty of times like in Isaiah and Amos and these other places where God is actually talking to the people of God and he's basically calling them Babylon. And he's actually saying, you guys, and you know, one, I saved you out of Egypt and now you're doing the exact same to other things to other people. You're turning away from me. You're exploiting and oppressing other people. You're not paying your workers correctly. And you begin to see this play out on a really systemic level. And this is where that intellectual honesty comes into place. This is the type of thing that oftentimes that we don't accept and we don't really stop and think about is that it's not always the people out there that the oppressors and the enemies. Oftentimes, the people that have, we would say that we've been, uh, we've been saved by grace of Jesus, we actually at times in our history though have become not the oppressed, but we've become the oppressors. I mean, if you study history at all, you're going to find this, the Crusades, medieval times, uh, so many different things in the church. And you go all the way up. To, I grew up Southern Baptist as a Southern Baptist. Uh, I went through a, um, I grew up, I was discipled there, called the ministry there, licensed the ministry there, all that kind of stuff. Went to a Southern Baptist school, uh, went to a college, got a degree in biblical studies from a Southern Baptist school, pastored for about 20 years. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I even knew that the Southern Baptist Convention was birthed out of the desire to hold slaves. Like that's where it started. It was a group of people that said, oh, you know, we don't want to just be Baptists. We're going to remain Southern Baptists. Why? Because we want slaves. Now, I didn't even know that. And why do I not know that is the reason that some of you probably didn't even know that is because simply there was just things that we don't talk about because it's always somebody else. Somebody else is always doing it. But if you look at history many times, what you see is the very people that say that they're trying to follow God begin to adopt the practices where we're not just the oppressed, but we're the oppressors. And we have to be aware of that because we want to obviously be a part of God's kingdom to liberate and to usher in his good kingdom, not be a part of this Babylonian kingdom, right? And so this happens, Israel does it, and then you fast forward through it, it becomes Rome, other nations, but ultimately it becomes the archetype for talking about the evil of the whole world. 
And so what you have through all these instances, and it would be a, probably a, a month-long seminar to actually talk about all these passages and all these things, but what this is really doing is, is what the, what the um, scripture writers often did is they would pick up these allusions or echoes and they would repeat them over and over again. And they would actually become a picture of the ultimate, the big picture of what is God really about? Because God is not just about kind of um, short term solutions, you know, to release somebody uh, for a period of time. And then another nation rises up and OK, well, let's release them. Now, what he wants to do and what he's eventually going to do is he's going to confront the entirety of human evil and he's going to liberate those that are underneath evil oppression. Now, that all leads forward to, uh, obviously, I can't go into everything, but I can give you one instance of that, kind of a a, a summary of it, and that's in Revelation chapter 19. This is at the end of the Bible. Um, This is how the story goes in Revelation 19. This is within the last couple of chapters, few chapters of the Bible. This is what the revelator John saw in a vision. He said, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, because that's what justice is, you come in and confront evil, right? That's, that's what we want. He judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Now, Take that, and let's move it forward in verse 13. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, let's just stop there for just a second. Okay, so what's happening? At the end of all times, what John is seeing is he's seeing when God ultimately will enter into the entirety of human history, and he will not just confront sin on a national level, he will confront sin on a human, systemic level. He will confront every bit of sin. And that's the kind of God that we want, right? And the reason I say that is because when people are hurt, when somebody in your life is hurt, you, you don't always want grace, you want justice, right? You want that. Um, for instance, this past week, I, I, I saw a news uh, release. Uh, there's this uh, website called Pornhub. Pornhub uh, is the largest pornography website in the entire world. Uh, tons of subscribers, more visits than uh, 99% of all the websites in the entire world. And I almost hesitate to mention it because I don't want you to go look it up, right? But here's the thing. Um, all these things that this website is doing, they're, they're being brought into litigation uh, right now in Canada, as a matter of fact, because not only are they propagating pornography, but what they're finding out is that people are uploading pornography onto this website, and what they're finding is there is trafficking that's going on, sexual trafficking that's going on. And there's underage child abuse that's being videoed and put online for people to go and watch. And millions of people are going to do that, going to watch that. Now, here's my question for you. The reason I, I mention that to you as an example we can either turn a blind eye to things like that and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. But would any of us honestly say, oh, it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter to that little girl or her family what happened to her. It doesn't matter to the family that they decimated and destroyed. And if we had a God, if we had a God that looked at that and said, oh, it doesn't matter, what kind of God is that? No, there's something in us that we know that justice needs to be done. Evil needs to be confronted. And though there's thousands of examples we can think of, it just takes one for us to go, you know what? Yeah, we need to confront evil. God has to step in and fix this stuff because this stuff is broken. And for many of you, you don't need some pastor to give you an illustration on that. You've lived through evil. 
You, you, it's been perpetrated on you. Something happened to you. And I'm not gonna stand up here on behalf of God and say it doesn't matter. No, it matters what happened to you. And I want you to hear that you have a God that knows it matters what happened to you. And we have a God that is not turning a blind eye, but that will ultimately step in and he will confront evil and he will release the oppressed. He will liberate the oppressed from underneath the hand of evil. And what is that, who is that gonna be? Well, John says it's the one called the word of God. Now, if you read scripture, you're gonna find this out. John that wrote Revelation actually wrote uh, the Gospel of John as well. And one of his favorite names for God is the Word of God. And when he's talking about the Word of God, he's talking about one specific person. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He starts out his whole gospel this way, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. It goes on to say, by the time you get down to verse 14, that he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So now that same Jesus that came in the flesh is coming back and he's coming back to wage war to bring justice against evil. Now, what is he going to do when he gets there? What's interesting, he's waging war, but what does it say? It says that he's, come in a, he's coming in a robe dripping in blood. Now, that's kind of a gross image, right? But it's interesting, the timing of that. He's not saying he's gonna go to war and get bloody, all right? He's saying he's already coming and he's already covered in blood. Now make a note of that. Now why is he already coming covered in blood? Because he already went to the cross. So the victory for the battle over evil was actually already won and now it's being consummated and it's being completed on this day of the Lord. So he comes in, he's riding on this white horse. It's a picture, you know, he's in fine linen, he's in white and he's clean. And then coming out of his mouth, it says it's a sharp sword, which with he'll strike down nations. And so what that means is he's gonna come and he's gonna declare a verdict. He's gonna declare a verdict because justice demands a verdict. And with that, it goes on to say, we'll finish it out. He'll rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we went from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There's a whole lot of stuff in between. But here's the thing. What he's initially saying here is he's saying that if in order to understand this, going back to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 12, remember what he said? He says to the places that do not accept him, the towns, he says, it will be more bearable on that day for, so for Sodom than for that town. Now, there's, a, there's a, probably a debate, a little bit of debate going on. What is that day in reference to those people? Okay, and we're gonna get to that next. But he's, he's likening it to the judgment that they all knew that had become another archetype for them that went back to the city of Sodom. This is another Genesis thing that they came replaying over and over again. It's where God come, came down and he judged an entire town. Now, if you study the town, what you find out is they had devolved from humanness into animal-like behavior, okay? That's basically what happened. They became very driven by every appetite you could imagine, whether it be sexual or anything like that, and they began to abuse and use other, other people. They began to exploit other people. And as the story plays out, in Genesis, not only did they uh, degrade their bodies and exploit other people for their own benefit, what they began to do is they began to deny the entry and the hospitality toward the people that would come in uh, on behalf of God. And so what does God do? 
day of the Lord comes down and it judges them and confronts evil uh, in, in that city. And so he says, on that day, it's going to be worse for you than it is for Sodom. And they all knew what that meant. They knew exactly what he was getting at there. It's a little bit more difficult for us. And that's why we got to look at the next part of the passage to really get clarity. And then we'll fast forward. And so what he says, he says in verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were performed and you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Now, again, none of these names mean that much to us, but they meant a lot to them because what this is chronicling for them is Jesus' march through his hometown, his homeland. He was actually, all these towns are towns around Galilee where he grew up, Capernaum for sure was. And, and here's the deal is these people, once again, when they heard this, they were expecting a Messiah. They've been calling out for centuries for a Messiah. Jesus comes on the scene. He comes uh, with John as his forerunner, which we studied at the beginning of the year. Uh, he comes in. And uh, he's healing people. He's preaching. He's talking about the kingdom of God coming near. And so some people begin to follow him, but not everybody. Some people looked at Jesus. People and even in his hometown, were told, would look at him and go like, hey, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? They could not accept Jesus as a king because what were they looking for? They were looking for someone to march into Jerusalem. And what do you think, if you were a Jew, kind of do a class quiz real quick. If you were a Jew in the first century and you were underneath evil oppression, who do you think they thought the day of the Lord would come and address the evil? What, what nation do you think they were thinking? Anybody got a guess? Rome, right? We're going to have to work on the class quizzes from now on. Okay. Um, they, they were thinking, Rome, they were thinking, okay, this Messiah is going to go in and he's going to do this thing and he's going to push out Rome because they were underneath heavy oppression from Rome. They were basically enslaved underneath Roman oppression. And the template had been God would come in and address all these outside forces and he would deliver them. But what is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, no, actually, it's a reversal. The insiders become outsiders. The outsiders become insiders. And so if you're in Bethsaida, if you're in Chorazin, you're from Capernaum, you're actually the ones that are going to face judgment. You're going to face justice. And my, where I take on this is I do think it, it lends itself to that revelation thing we, wrote, we, we read about. But I also think that it talked about just simply him going to Jerusalem as the king. They said, oh, we're not following you into Jerusalem. And what Jesus is saying is just a few years subsequent to that, just a few years later, the temple, Rome's going to come in in AD 70, and they're going to decimate the temple. They're going to destroy it and tear it down. And what Jesus, I think, in effect is saying, listen, you're going to miss out, and it's going to be bad for you. But instead, what am I doing? I'm going to the cross for you. And what that means for us is simply this, is that we live in the framework or the paradigm of the day of the Lord where God wants to enter into human history to confront evil and to release the oppressed. And what that means for us is that if we are saying we're following that Jesus, that means that what we do here as a church, as what we do as faith, is not about just adding a little religion into our lives to make our lives better. That's not what this is. This is not about finding a church where you can get comfortable and come into a service and just kind of hang out. No, this is looking around us 
And it's saying, no, if we're following a God that is about confronting evil and to release the oppressed, then that's what defines us. That is our paradigm. That's who we are. What will it take for us to do that? Well, I think there's a lot, but it'll take two simple things. I think the first thing it's gonna take is soberness about us. Soberness just simply means clear-headedness. It means looking clearly at where we are and we live at this particular time in this particular junction in the world with what's going on right now. We have the situation we have. And what does that mean? That means that we step into the battle to become liberators and confronters of systemic evil that's in our world for the benefit of those that are being harmed by it to usher in God's kingdom. Because what's our message? The kingdom of God has come near. This good kingdom that we live in that reflects who Jesus is. And so we proclaim Jesus and we also come in and we demonstrate Jesus. But that means that all of us are going to have to be sober-minded. That means that we're, we, can't, we can't focus on ourselves. We've got to focus on others. We've got to get the big picture. We can't live in a bubble. We've got to actually enter into the reality of the world around us. And when we do it, we enter in with soberness, but we enter in with intentionality. That means that we're not just going in to take part in it. That means that we're not just coming as spectators. There's no spectators here. There's no somebody that's just kind of on the fence and just kind of watching along. No, like we are all together mobilized underneath the paradigm of what God is about. God is about confronting evil and liberating the oppressed. And so what do we do? We come around that together. That's what we do. We look for ways in our community we can do that. We look for those things nationally we can do that. We look for ways internationally that we can do that, we confront that. So that's kind of the, the, the side that he gives us and says, hey, when things don't go well, here's what you're supposed to do. This is what I want you to do. Don't draw battle lines. Don't make people out to be the enemies. We're liberators. And so we're gonna go in and we're gonna attack and push back the evil. But then he finishes up. He finishes up that whole thing with some instruction because what happened was the disciples, they went out and they were doing all this stuff. And then they kind of had like a, a meeting afterwards, kind of like a, a recap, you know, vid, uh, meeting where they actually looked and said, hey, what happened? And so the disciples come back to Jesus in verse 17. Oh, hang on, verse 16. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects uh, me, uh, you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. So he's talking like, hey, listen, don't get worried about rejection. Ultimately, what are they doing? They're rejecting me. They're not really rejecting you. They're not just rejecting you. Uh, we're so afraid of rejection that we don't act on anything. And he's saying, listen, I, I just want you to know if they reject you, they're going to reject me. Uh, and, and that's on them. Ultimately, it's not on you. But we've got to be faithful, right, to push back the evil. So then he goes into verse 17. We'll finish with this. The 72, they return with joy, okay, because they've been sent out. And he said, Lord, even the demons submit to your name, which that sounds pretty cool. If you've ever been like in a, in a small group or something like that, and they always do this thing where they're like, uh, we got prayer, um, prayer and praise time or something like that. Now, anybody got a testimony? People say stuff like that. Anybody got a story to celebrate? You know, and uh, somebody pops up and they say, hey, you know what? We came back and, man, we were casting out demons and stuff. And then everybody in the circle is like, oh, man, all I got was like a parking, a parking spot at Target. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not say anything. They, this is kind of like the trump card, like for like, you know, praise report, you know. And, and so Jesus is kind of like hearing this, and it sounds like great. Like, man, we're going to celebrate this. Jesus rocks back in his chair in verse 18. Uh, and he, after hearing that, he replies to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Uh, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, let me just say this. Uh, uh, if you've ever seen one of those churches where they do like snake handling and stuff like that, listen, we're not that kind of church. Just so you know, like, I don't like snakes. Okay, we're not going to do that. Uh, that's actually not even what he's talking about. He's actually using metaphorical language because you remember what Satan was referred to in the Genesis story? Anybody remember? He was a serpent, right? And so they would use this kind of like personify, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but they would personify uh, enemies and, and uh, people that were deceptive as these type of things. And so Jesus sent them out uh, and he says, I've given you authority to trample on these demons and all this kind of stuff and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing's going to harm you. And then he says this, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what does Jesus do? He hears them and they're, they're pumped, man. They're excited. They're excited because this is, man, this is when everything was going right. This is when you go to the service and man, it was good. And this is when your relationships are good and the money's good and man, God's moving. And man, you got like goosebumps all the time because man, you just sense God moving and stuff like that. But he detects something in them, something that they did not see themselves. It was a huge blind spot for them. It was a subtle thing, but because Jesus is all wise he sees everything. He saw into their hearts, even in the statement that they said, when they said, hey, man, we, it was unbelievable, Jesus. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And so what did they do? They said, oh, man, they threw Jesus in, but they said they submitted to us in your name. And what Jesus detected in them was what is the temptation for all of us, even when God's moving in us, that we've got to be aware of to shape our paradigm. And that is that we don't read our own press. We don't believe our own hype. We don't get caught up in the euphoria and the infatuation of power and all the good days. What do we do? We don't begin to believe that it is because of us that God's doing something. And then this has historically been a problem in the church. With people even that started out for the right reasons, doing the right things, they devolved. They used their power to harm people. I mean, a good example of that, if you're keeping up with the news, is this guy named Ravi Zacharias. Uh, he passed away in late 2020. He was a huge name internationally. He was this Christian apologist. He would go on college campuses, and people buy his books and watch his YouTube videos and all this kind of stuff. And he had a mass following of people that followed him. And he, in the latter years of his life, we begin to find out that there were accusations of sexual abuse that he was perpetrating. And nobody could believe it. Nobody believed it. They said, oh, no, he couldn't do that. No, he wouldn't do that. He had people defending him, and he had, the, he had this secret life he was leading until just about a month ago. They come out with a report. His own minister comes out with a report. Find out he had had all these massage parlors on the side, and he was doing all this stuff, and he was actually harming people, exploiting people, leading, living two lives. And you read that, and you're like, how does somebody get to that? How do you live these two lives? How do you live a life where you're publicly being one thing and then privately you're being another thing only at some point for it to all come to the surface? Well, I think might be what happened in that situation for the despicable acts that he's perpetrated. And I'll just say this, that there's been so many people within the church that have been so silent about sexual abuse that's happened within the Southern Baptist Convention. It's happened in the church. Why? Because we don't really want to confront evil. We are happy and comfortable with the facade. But what happened is what 
Jesus confronted is that he went to the heart and said, if you believe this is about you and you begin to exalt yourself and you begin to build an empire around yourself, you're just like the Tower of Babel. You're just like Pharaoh. You're just like Israel when they went wayward. You're just like Rome. And we begin to create this narcissistic perception of ourselves. And I'm just going to say this, for our church, that's not going to fly. That's not going to be who we're going to be. From this point forward, we're going to be vocal. We're going to pay attention. We're going to address evil where evil needs to be addressed. And we're not going to remain silent about things. I don't want to pastor a church and I don't want to be a part of a church that just wants to roll along with the current and act like everything's okay. No, we can't not act against evil and we better not ever believe it's about us. And that's exactly what Jesus was confronting. He packed so much stuff into this little interlude with them because he said, hey, their stakes are high. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter seven, he told us exactly how high the stakes were. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, there's that day again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoer. Lots of good stuff happened. I did a lot of good things, gave a lot of money, served on a lot of boards, went to church every Sunday, did all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says, listen, listen, you live two, you live two lives. That's not who you really were. And he said, on that day, I will confront evil in you. I will confront it. Because none of us wants a God that is not willing to confront evil. And I would say, even if it's us. Because if God cannot confront evil in us, then he can't be a God of justice. He can't be good. And so God confronts evil, ultimately, and he does it through us. But what's it going to take for our paradigm to work? Well, I think the first thing is this. In order for this to happen, it's going to take humbleness. It's going to take humility. We've been praying for a month that God would give us a heart of humility. And oftentimes it seems that the church is the last place where you find it. You found a lot of pride, arrogant people that think they're better than other people, look down their noses at other people. And it's going to have to be a constant posture of evaluation of our own sinfulness, confessing it before God and laying ourselves at the foot of Jesus continually going back to his sacrifice because he says that he will resist the proud and he will give grace to the humble. And so we've got to continually come before him. And what does that mean for us? That means that we're also going to have to have the quality of genuineness. Listen, we're not, we're not just selling stuff here. Genuineness, genuineness means that people are not projects and they are not meant to meet sales quotas or fill up buildings. Our goal is not just to fill this room up with people again. Our goal is to say, hey, how can we serve people authentically, meet them where they are, personal and practical, proclaim the good news of Jesus into their life so that they can experience the reality of the kingdom in their presence and give their lives to him and follow him and extend the kingdom of goodness to other people. And what is that going to take? Well, it's going to take the last word, faithfulness. As I was typing these things, I was like, man, none of this sounds very... Uh, awe-inspiring. And none of these words up here, like these are just common words. There's nothing in here that's flashy. 
But I think what God is calling us to do, he's, he's calling us to move from style to substance. He's not calling us to every time, well, man, we get excited when the room's full. He's calling us to a life of grit and tenacity and faithfulness. That means when everything doesn't seem like it's going great, that we're still faithful, we're still moving forward, we're still pressing in, and we're pressing in not just for the common things, but for the hard things. We're making a difference, we're making a dent in the evil that's in our world. We're bringing the kingdom with us. We're going to the future and we're dragging it into the present. We're living lives of humility, lives of authenticity and genuineness, and we're being faithful. And none of that's glamorous, but that's the gospel. The gospel of the good news is Jesus, is Jesus did the work, and so he empowers us with all these qualities to continue to follow him. And he doesn't call us to do us alone. He calls us to do it as one body. And so just like Jesus uh, celebrated Passover with his followers, I can't think of any better way for us to end our time together than doing what he did when he called us to remember the day of the Lord, the day on the cross where he shed his blood for us. When you came into the room, hopefully you had a chance to grab uh, some communion elements. They're right back there in the back. If you didn't, I want to ask you to go ahead and go get those right now and return to your seat. Um, we're going to take this together. Just make your way back there. You can grab that and just return to your seat. And as you do, the band's going to come out. And we're not coming alone today. Um, we're coming together as one body because we're all in need. Uh, I love the fact that the church is the people of God. Uh, though we can come to God alone, he calls us to be a part of a, of a people, of a family. And if you're not a member here, you can still take communion with us if you believe in the, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. We would love for you to do that. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna say a corporate prayer together. And then I'm gonna give you just a minute to confess and go before the Lord personally and privately. And then we're gonna take the elements all together as a church. But let's begin this way together. Uh, let's say this prayer together. If you will, read along with me. Almighty God, to you all our hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like for you to take a minute, and if you just engage in personal prayer to the Lord, confessing your sin before him, uh, concentrating on his sacrifice and his goodness, if you do that for just a minute. Heavenly Father, we come before you. You've heard our prayers all around this room. Individuals that you died for have come before you and confessed their need for you. 
Uh, obviously, we need forgiveness from you, but we need so much more than just forgiveness, God. We need your spirit to come in to make us new. We need you to empower us through your spirit to follow you. And we need your, your spirit to lead and guide us how to influence those around you. Lord, we've been praying for a month, just diligently praying for our city, praying over ourselves, God. And we, we, we culminated that even this Wednesday by just saying, God, like we, we're asking you to bring revival in us, but we know that that revival is us. It's, it's us. It, it, it's us breaking our hearts for what breaks yours. And so we ask God that you would come in and do that. You'd generate that in us. Lord, would you give us a heart of humility that held you on the cross, that you didn't have to do that? A heart of genuineness, that genuine concern for us, would you give us that? God, your faithfulness when we were unfaithful, would you generate that in us? We thank you for the day of the Lord when your blood was spilled, where ultimately and finally you stepped into the evil and you confronted it. Or you didn't leave any stone unturned. All sins past, present, and future were covered by your blood and were safe underneath your hand. And so, Lord, if, as we take communion today, we remember that sacrifice. We're empowered by God. We take it in. In a very tangible way, we ask you to change us through it. Focus our minds, Lord. Sober our minds. Help us to live with intentionality, God. Not flippantly, not for ourselves. And that's our prayer. Thank you that you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna read this scripture to you and we'll take the bread. While the disciples were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. If you go on to the next thing, let's read this together and then we'll take it. Let's read this together. Thank you for the bread. I remember your body that was broken for me. Let's take. And then the cup. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take. And then let's say this prayer together as we finish. Thank you for the cup. I remember your blood that was shed for my forgiveness and the promise that I will live eternally with you.